Hello and welcome to Word Up, a series of podcasts hosted by Oxford University Press with Helen Prince and guests. In this podcast, the phrase windows and mirrors is discussed. So I just had a quick look at the etymology behind the word window. And it was first seen in Old Norse circa 1200 and literally meant wind eye because it came from the word vinda, meaning wind, and auger, meaning eye. In Old English, the word literally meant eye hole or eye door. And in Old Frisian, it literally meant breath door. Love that. The phrase window dressing in relation to shop windows first seen in 1853 and window shopping is recorded from 1904. The phrase window seat was first seen in 1778 and then much later. In 1979, we have the phrase window of opportunity. And that stems from the US space program where the phrase launch window was first used around 1963. I'm really excited today to welcome to our Word Up podcast, Mr. Pink, a.k.a. Matt Pinkett. I've I've followed Matt Pinkett, a.k.a. Mr. Pink, on Twitter for years, so it's a real joy for me to be able to to chat with you today. Um, Author of the brilliant Boys Don't Try, Matt's a senior leader and regularly contributes to the tests and teach secondary. He's a speaker at this year's EdFest, and he has a real passion for improving outcomes for boys. Matt, welcome to our Word Up podcast. Hello, hello. It's nice to be here. We're delighted to have you. Um, I think what a, what a fascinating passion. I think in English teaching, we've absolutely known about boys under achievement in English. Yeah. And we've been talking about that for a very long time. So I'm fascinated to talk to you today. And let's start off by thinking about why do you think too many boys are struggling, especially now in 2021? What does it look like for boys? Are they struggling? And if they are, why is, why is that? Yeah, I mean, there's two things you're dealing with here. On one level, you're dealing with the fact that school closures because of the pandemic um, have widened the gap for, for all cohorts of students who were struggling prior to the pandemic. So mm. I would expect that, you know, the gap has widened for boys and girls. Um, the gap will have widened for disadvantaged students. All those students who have uh, SEN students, I think that for many of these students who who are unmotivated um, through no fault of their own, they have found it difficult to continue learning during the pandemic. And I think Mm. that um, I think that that has manifested itself in the fact that now lots of schools are are offering up additional additional catch up sessions, that sort of thing. Yeah. So I think that for boys, it does look like a lot of catch up. But also what you're dealing with, pandemic or not, I think that low expectations of what boys can achieve academically means that they are still not where they should be in terms of the results that they, they, they leave school with. I think, that's, I think that's really interesting. Where does that low expectation come from? It comes from everywhere, doesn't it? It comes from all around us. Um, it, comes from, it comes from the media. It comes from teachers. Deborah Myhill and Susan Jones at Exeter University did a did a great study looking into teachers' kind of unconscious expectations around students and gender. Um, and yeah, uh, most teachers think that boys don't like reading, that boys are naughty, boys are disruptive, um, boys don't mm. like 
English. You know, there's a whole host of kind of preconceived ideas about boys that um, with all the best will in the world, you know, teachers impart onto students and not because they're teachers, but because they're human beings. And, you know, I still think traditionally this idea that boys are physical beings who will only succeed in subjects that are practical. Um, I still think that that, you know, despite everything, despite the huge progress we're making um, mm. as a society when we're talking about gender, I still think that in schools, in many schools, these these persistent stereotypes are still quite per- pervasive. Yeah, still pervade some of our, our, our thinking, perhaps. I'm, I'm thinking we're talking about secondary, aren't we? Because, mm. I mean, what, what is that? What is that change? You go into a primary classroom and, you know, there just, there just is this sense of engagement and activity and, and fun around every, every activity. And then, you know, you get recalcitrant teenagers hitting us in year eight who don't want to and don't want to and don't want to. Yeah. But, you know, you get, you get girls that are like that as well. Um, 100%. Yeah, yeah. I just think we don't notice it so much. Um, or girls that are like that are, are seen as an anomaly, whereas boys that are like that, it's seen as the norm. Um, mm. And there's peer pressure, you know, there's still in, in, in the culture of the playground um, and the school corridors and classrooms, um, you know, research bears this out. But hard work, asking the teacher questions, positive relationships with teachers, um, you know, these are all seen as inherently female traits. And again, like I've already said, despite the progress we've made for many boys, um, the own, you know, the worst thing is that they may be perceived to be unmale, you know. Um, and so to show yourself, you know, for many boys that, that you are a man, the man that that TV and movies and Netflix or whatever is telling you to be, you have to rebel against those female traits so if the girls are asking questions you don't ask questions if the girls are working hard you don't work hard you know you mess Mm. around a bit um you know the class clown and all all that sort of stuff um there's lots of research that bears this out um and 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 yeah in many schools for many boys um of course not all boys but for many boys it is still a problem Mm. and maybe i think we're we're quite familiar with the idea that many of the early literacy experiences that our children have are predominantly female. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, There is this, if we're talking about English and there is this idea that English is a female subject. I think on Twitter a couple of years ago, I did put a poll out and I said, um, it was a multiple choice poll. Is your, is your English department, mostly female, mm. mostly male, or an even split. And I think something like 78% or something of the answers said mostly female. Um, we know that early on in school, you know, primary school teachers, I think isn't it 80% of primary teachers are female. Um, I think that drops to about 62% at secondary. But still, English is, a, I think, a predominantly female subject in terms of how it looks or how it is perceived. Um, and when I say how it looks, I mean, literally, I think, you know, there's more female English teachers than there are male. Um, and when I talk about how it's perceived, um, again, many students see the English and everything it represents. Um, that is to say expression, 
emotions, mm. the human condition, and discussing it seem to be, you know, a largely female preoccupation and not something that men should should bother with. It's a it's a fascinating area, isn't it? And I'm not sure, you know, how how do we get round that? And a lot of that, as you say, is going to be to do with role models. I've got a lovely quote that I found of yours. Yeah. Um, and you said that as teachers, we are role models. And I genuinely feel that in keeping my accent, I'm telling my kids, go far, but don't forget where you came from. Yeah, that's it. I like, yeah. Um, yeah, that was an article. That was an article. I think I was talking about standard English and, and pronunciation. Um, I think the article's called something about geezers, isn't it? Yeah. Which I, lo- I loved. And a big picture of Ray Winston. Yeah, it was an article. We think geezer. That's who, that's who, we, that's who we picture. Yeah, yeah, it was an article in which I was talking about the way I speak, um, dropping my T's and stuff like that. Um, Quite. I mean, I teach in Surrey, so I think it's fair to say that not everybody speaks as I do, particularly teachers. And I, I wrote the article because I just became aware that throughout my career, like the way I spoke or the way I speak has often been mocked a little bit by other teachers in the staff room and stuff like that. And um, it just made me interested in the kind of bias or the prejudice that people have against. Mm. Um, you know, I have one... Um, I did have one head teacher tell me to tone it down a bit as if I was putting it on, to which I replied, well, would you tell a Scottish teacher or a Pakistani teacher to tone? This is how I speak. It's who I am. And I kept it because I kept speaking like this because it is who I am. And you can be who you are. You don't have to change. You can still stick to your roots and you can still write beautifully and express yourself clearly and articulately. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and what a great role model. I mean, that's, um, that's something from the latest OUP report. Really, I think it's Sandra Bay, who's the founder of No More Exclusion, says that it really benefits us all and, our, you know, our young people to see something of themselves in what we're reading and what we're experiencing and the stories that we're sharing, to see something of themselves, you know. And so we need such a diverse range of role models. Yeah, I think... I think the way I look, I guess, the shave dead and, and, and the way I speak, I think... It's great for lockdown. Yeah, I, I just think, yeah, it's been perfect. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I, I, I do think that perhaps students might see in me something that they don't see in certain other teachers, just as they will see in other teachers stuff that I can't provide, you know? Yeah. I'm not saying yeah. all it takes is speaking, you know, like Dick Van Dyke and shaving your head and you're in there. <laughs> I'm just saying... It's important as teachers that we all are authentically ourselves because each and every one of us will, will, we will be, we will be kind of like a window like to students, like students can see stuff in us that they've never seen before. But for other students, we could be a kind of a reflection or a mirror, you know, Um, I might be the only teacher that a certain kid has met who's ever spoken like he does, you know, Mm. or I'm, Mm. you know, another teacher might, be the only teacher that a student's ever seen that also wears a hearing aid and you know I don't know but um yeah it's it's crucial that that diverse world that we must represent in in who we are I love the idea of windows and mirrors yeah windows to opportunity and mirrors to reflect yeah yeah they are so they can see something of themselves um, you referred earlier to Debbie Myhill's research and that's um I think it's called Troublesome Boys Compliant Girls which is a great title yeah. Um, 
And in it, she found many boys really have negative attitudes to writing. Mm. And they often talk about themselves as being unsuccessful writers. Have you come across that? Yeah, definitely. Um, do you know what? I, I don't know. what It's difficult here, isn't it? Because I've often wondered about what we perceive to be bad writing. So as teachers, we will read, um, we will read novels, literature, um, and we get used to a certain kind of subject matter or style which we may perceive to be sophisticated. Um, mm. Now, what I have found is that lots of boys tend to write about fights with aliens in space or scoring the winning goal in a football match or mm. being a secret agent. And my instinct, uh, my instinct when I read these kind of stories is, well, that's immature. And I wonder how often, you know, whereas um, another student, perhaps a girl, might write a, a very nuanced and subtle story about, um, I don't know, the breakdown of a relationship. Um, yeah, you know, it's a journey, a journey yeah. that's that's metaphorical or symbolic in some way, mm. and I, I assume well that's mature, and a, a fight in space with aliens is immature. That's it, not what Netflix thinks. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> it, it, could it not be the case that that I'm putting my own bias and, and prejudices on, on projecting that onto the way I mark these stories? Because a story about aliens in space if you're a sci-fi writer right mm. is mature and it might contain you know these stories okay they might be formulaic but do they not um you know the vocabulary the 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 way language is used um the way the sentences are ordered the structure okay we might think the subject matter is immature but but is it and i think that that is a, a really important thing to 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 bear in mind when we look at students work and the way that boys write early on um we've got to be careful not to project our expectations of what good writing is onto them because i think often boys are told look that's a bit immature maybe you should write yeah. a more symbolic story um and you know i think that stifles boys and makes them less confident in their writing yeah that's really interesting it's almost as if we could do with a, you know, a standards file of writing that achieves a certain level to show the range of topic and theme and yeah. genre that it could represent. Because I think you're right. I think there's a, I think there is a, a tendency perhaps to look at, you know, that really action-packed adventure writing as less worthy perhaps Absolutely. than the more nuanced you know, Definitely. descriptive. Yeah. And, it, you know, my, my thinking, I did, I, did, I did read something on this. I can't remember where it's from. I'm sorry. But, um, yeah, somebody did say that teachers tend to view boys' writing as more immature. Um, but it was also prompted from um, a piece of work that I marked recently um, in which I, it was about an alien. And I was like, oh, like, it, it was from another a, alien. Yeah, it was from an older student. <laughs> but then I actually looked at it again and thought, well, it, imagine I'm reading some uh, I don't know some Philip K Dick or you know um, you know a sci-fi writer here mm -hmm. but actually it's a good piece of sci-fi writing it's entertaining uh, you know and it completely changed the way I looked at that piece of work um, and in the end the student you know it was submitted as part of coursework and, and the student did really really well um, whereas perhaps yeah. if 
if I hadn't rethought the way I was marking it, perhaps it yeah. wouldn't have happened. It's that convincing, compelling voice, isn't it, that we're all striving for by uh, by GCSE time and obviously beyond. Yeah. But you know, to be convincing and compelling, does the genre matter? Yeah. yeah exactly. That's a really interesting, really interesting chat. Um, I had a look at something that Ofsted said the other day that they they found that boys in particular tend to read material that's appropriate for those below the chronological age and they cite non-fiction yeah. as being the most likely to sort of oversimplify language and on average could be that they're reading two years behind their actual chronological age yeah and I just wondered do you think that's a barrier do you think that's something we should be concerned about or are we celebrating all forms of reading What's your view of that? I do think it's a concern in the sense that, again, I think that there is a myth or a stereotype that boys prefer nonfiction. In almost every school library, there's a section of nonfiction full of dog-eared Guinness Book of Records, um, you know, encyclopedias yeah. about tanks and, and uh, you know, profiles on famous footballers. Top gear. Yeah, top gear annuals. And they're, you know, they're yeah. routinely just dished out to, to, to a certain type, I think, a certain type of boy. Um, uh, because it's assumed that these boys don't like reading because they haven't yet found a book that they like and therefore they must only like nonfiction. And we've got to remember that nonfiction for children um, are often information texts. And the idea of an information text really is to simplify and elucidate difficult concepts or ideas. Mm -hmm. And so the language is simplified. Um, and, you know, boys, you know, just because they say they like cars or they like nonfiction, that, I don't think that should inform the, the types of books we expose them to. Um, I think we often, there's a thing, isn't there? We've got to encourage a love of reading. And I think too often we let the student dictate how that kind of mantra dictates what happens so we might say right we're going to buy every kid a book their very own book or we're going to go to the library and get them a book let's find out what the kid likes and the kid will tell you and you'll let that inform the book you choose for them but actually perhaps the problem here the reason they like non-fiction or the reason certain boys will only read books about tanks is because they've always been allowed to um, yeah perhaps yeah. it's our job to to expose them to a wider range of texts um, and to kind of yeah. insist on it almost, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. Because, you know, in, a, in an analogy with food, if you've never eaten sushi, you don't know you like sushi, do you? Exactly, exactly. I think also the problem we're finding, I think we're obsessed with this idea of kids loving reading and, um, you know, it can, it can take a long time to fall in love or to, to mm. meet the right one, you know. Um, mm. And we shouldn't assume that just because a student doesn't like their first book that they are unable to read or unable to enjoy reading. I think it's also important we tell the student that as well. Um, yeah, you know, the students need to be reminded that they live in a world where everything is instant. And actually, you know, the satisfaction of book reading um, doesn't often come right away. I was speaking last night to a friend and um, we were talking about Dickens. and. I said, you know, I've, I've recently read Bleak House and for the whole, well, I don't know what, 800 whatever pages of it, I, I, I'm still not sure if I really enjoyed the experience. Mm. But, when a sentence lasts half a page. That's it, you know. But, quite tiring, isn't it, sometimes? But, you know, but I'm talking to you now and I'm enjoying 
talking about the fact that I am someone who has read Dickens um, or read Bleak House, you know? And so I would say that although perhaps I didn't enjoy the reading of the book, I enjoy what I've taken from it, which is... Mm. That delayed gratification thing, isn't it? That's it. It is delayed gratification. Um, And I think that we do need to be very... I think we're always trying to trick kids, you know? We're always trying to get them to love a book why, why don't we just have some real upfront conversations? Like, yeah, you might not love it, actually, to be fair. But, you know, it's still <laughs> yeah. valuable. And, and just, because, just because you don't love it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Um, yeah. And also the, va- the huge value and importance of reading to our young people in the classroom. I don't think we have enough time and opportunity to do that. And I think we're frightened of spending the time just reading a book to a class. I mean, I imagine... We have all had a moment where the class are so enjoying a book that you're reading to them that you just think, oh, do you know what? I'm not going to do what I planned. We're just going to we're just going to carry on and read and you read for a whole lesson. And I think that that the value of listening to somebody else read and tell a story in an engaging and exciting way. That's a real that's a really powerful moment of thinking, actually, okay, it's a book. Someone's read it to me, but I enjoyed that. Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing, nothing better. Um, a recent school in which I worked, um, we had a scheme in which, yeah, students were read to. Um, it, yeah. it wasn't a reading culture in the school um, and it wasn't feasible or, or, or acceptable, really, just to, just to give kids a book and say, right, off you go. So, um, yeah, 10 minutes a day, students were read to. Um, mm. And, you know, you select the books carefully. Um, you select a range of genres, um, perspectives and experiences as recounted in the books. But yeah. also, you know, you'd be clever. You, you, you pick the first book in a trilogy um, and you read that. And, you know, the kids will go off and, 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 and they'll, they'll read it. I think it's also important, isn't it? It's, it's the modelling process. You know, we don't all read like English teachers who are very good uh, readers. Um, you know, some teachers that maybe don't read so much might struggle to articulate the words. They might struggle with, I don't know, you doing an accent for a character's voice. They might get a little bit embarrassed about the fact that they can't say a certain word and they have to look it up. Um, but I think it's really- I think, that's so, I think that's so helpful. I think it's so valuable for kids seeing teachers go through that reading process really, and struggling yeah. over a word or- And not just English teachers, you know, teachers across the school, ideally. Um, yeah. yeah, taking risks, isn't it? Yeah, and, and showing that reading is just like writing, you know, you don't just write a brilliant piece of text just as you don't read one, you know, you sometimes you struggle and it's about yeah. owning up to your mistakes and, and all the rest of it and but just carrying on. And, yeah, because that's how we learn. You know, I think we stigmatise failure so much. That's it, yeah. Getting stuff wrong is so such a no-no. But how on earth do we learn unless we get it wrong? That's it, you're right. Um, so what, in your view, what do you think good vocabulary teaching looks like for boys is it different for boys or is there a no. is there a one size fits all yeah I think there is a one I think it's easy to say what doesn't work for boys because I think perhaps in schools too many schools are doing that I mean what works is is direct vocabulary instruction you know um selecting vocabulary words that you think students need to know or will be useful for them telling them the word um, explaining what the word means. Um, that's really important, actually, explanations rather than definitions. Too often yeah. um, we'll give students a word like, 
I don't know, naive, and then we'll give them the dictionary definition. And often dictionary definitions just are full of other words. Other words that we don't, we don't understand. Know what they mean. So, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we'd take a word like naive, for example, um, rather than give them a definition, you might explain it by saying, um, if you are naive, you tend to always look upon things positively. Or, you know, so that, that, that's a, probably a bad example, but, but something like that. And then you'd give an example. Mm. For example, mm. for example, if you told me um, you hadn't done your homework because your crocodile ate it and I just said, okay, I believe you, that would be naive of me. You see, yeah. I'm looking at what yeah. you're positively rather than actually, or, or something like that, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, really helpful to have examples. Yeah, so examples um, and explanations. Uh, I think non-examples are also really good as well. Um, yeah, like in the Freya model. Yeah. It's really helpful to know what it isn't. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I found that works. And exposure as well, I think is really important. And I think that's where it gets difficult is really, you know, you teach a vocabulary word one week or in one lesson, you've got to make sure students are repeatedly and repeatedly exposed to that word or those words again and again and again. Yeah, uh, really embed. Mm. So, Brilliant. you know, and that, that works. And there's been lots of writing on that. Um, Alex Quigley's written about it. Uh, is it Isabel Beck's done lots of work on yeah. that? The, the things that don't work for boys is, you know, again, dumbing it down, choosing not to teach them vocabulary words because you think they won't need it, or, you know, somehow just giving them a word search and saying, find the words, now you know them. You know, somehow making this weird boy-friendly game where they, I don't know, they have to shoot an imaginary gun at a target word and that you know and run around the room trying to find its definition all that rubbish like that doesn't work get them sat down tell them a word tell them what it means and then give them the opportunity to talk about it have a conversation in which they use that word i just wondered whether you've used um drama to good effect when you're teaching vocabulary in particular i haven't i mean although i i like to think that direct direct vocabulary um instruction sounds very staid doesn't it but I like to think that in my own teaching or whenever I've um, taught vocabulary, I think I always bring an element of the dramatic to the, <laughs> to the performance. Um, do you do a bit of teacher in role? Yeah, a bit, of, you know. So, uh, no, no. <laughs> you know, so I think that, um, no, I've not used drama. Art, I mean, I know that's that works. I think, again, Beck wrote about that. Um, about you know uh, visual images to help students or to help prompt students to remember words um and there's all sorts of diagrams that you that you can do but perhaps i'm old-fashioned there's only so much i can handle you know words explanation plus a picture if, if i'm learning you know i think i think beck said that you know a student can learn 450 new words in a year well that's a lot of extra you know on top of the word and the definition and how to use it that's 450 pictures I'm having to remember too. So, um, but you know, a better teacher than than I would, would I'm sure, could could make that work. It's it's really lovely to listen to your um, um, humble's the wrong word. What's the right word? Just just really real. It's just really real to listen to you talking about your experiences in in the classroom and what you do. It's really interesting. Love to come. Love to come and team teach. 
Maybe we should do that. Let's go team team. Welcome. I need I'll do the bit of drama. The you, can, you can do a bit of art. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be great fun. We talked about low expectation at the beginning. Um, and obviously, you know, we talk constantly about high expectation, high expectation, expecting the very best outcomes from our young people. Do you think that for boys in particular, that that looks different? Or what does it mean to, have, to look at for high expectation from our, from our lads in our classrooms? Yeah, I, I do think it looks different. People will say they have high expectations and then they'll, you know, they'll praise a boy because he got his pen out. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's not rewardable behavior. That's what you do, right? That's, um, I, 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 I focus on the good, focus on the you, good. You know, um, I do think that high expectations means really undoing a lot of the things that we think work with boys. Um, so lots of, you know, making learning relevant to them, you know, giving them sports articles, every lesson so they can identify the verbs in it, you know, or give them rap music in a poetry lesson. Well, actually, why not just show them some actual poetry, you know? I think high expectations is a word that gets said a lot, but... Um, yeah, but what does it look like? Yeah. What does it look like? It looks like teaching difficult stuff, you know, difficult and interesting stuff in such a way that the boys are challenged, and, but also that they, they have a chance of, of getting it. I mean, lots of the research also shows that boys, um, boys are overconfident. Boys think that they're better than they are, um, and that affects their motivation. And so actually giving them challenging material mm. is also an opportunity. Whilst it's going to stretch them and it's enriching for them, it's also, and I, you know, I don't want to sound horrible here, but some of our boys just need to, <laughs> need to know that they're not as clever as they think they are, and actually they do need to work hard. Um, but they only are going to realise that on the days when instead of stu studying Stormzy lyric, they're, they're studying Wordsworth, you know. Um, so I do think it really is about picking your material carefully. Um, yeah. And, and start with Stormzy and work, work, work your way up. up. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I think um, the, the author Sebastian Fox, I think, said he tries to challenge but not lose his readers. And I guess it's that tightrope, isn't it, about wanting to challenge but not lose yeah. your, your young people's we, engagement. Exactly. But, you know, again, we underestimate what boys, what boys find interesting. You know, of course they're going to love your lesson where you analyse the metaphors in a piece of football commentary. Of course they are. It's, you know, or where you do fractions in maths and, all you, really, and you cut up a pizza. Of course they're going to love that. <laughs> right? But if, if it's so effective, why don't we do that thing every lesson? Well, we don't because secretly, deep down, we know it doesn't really work. And you'll be surprised if you teach boys stuff, you know, challenging vocabulary words, interesting literary concepts that they've never heard before, difficult, mm. um, difficult and challenging texts. They'll be interested and they'll rise to the challenge. You've just got to credit yeah. them with a little bit more intelligence, I think. And it's empowering, isn't it? Of course it is, yeah, yeah. And, you know, again, you're not, you're not trying to trick them. You're honest with them. You say, look, um, you know, I'm, I'm teaching you some real difficult stuff here. And, you know, it's amazing that you're giving it a go. And don't be worried if you don't get it this lesson, next lesson, or even the lesson after that. Because, you know, I'm going to do my best for you and I'm going to support you any way I can. Um, and at one point, 
you will you will get it because I'm going to support you and you're going to work hard as well, just as hard for me as I'm working for you to help you understand this. And honestly, that's that's what good teaching looks like, whether, whether, it's, whether you're teaching boys or girls. Brilliant. Right, quick fire question or two. Ready? Yep. <laughs> best school trip? Wow. My best school trip? My yeah, best... as a kid or as a teacher? I or remember... in fact, both. Let's have both. Okay. As a student, I went to Florence. Um, I was lucky enough. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, we went to the Uffizi Gallery and... And I just fell in love with um, I just fell in love with the city then. I think I was seventeen years old, um, and actually I've named my daughter after the city as well. So yeah. her middle name is Florence. Um, and, Gorgeous. Yeah. Um, so that's my favourite school trip I ever went on. Brilliant. Your most memorable lesson? One I did. <laughs> can't remember any. Um, no, uh, <laughs> my most memorable lesson. God, that is a good question. I remember once I. Um, I taught students the poem Invictus and the boy stood up and recited the whole thing to me the next lesson. He'd gone home and learned it off by heart. Oh, yeah, that amazing. was good. That was good. Yeah, wow. That, you, opened a, you opened a whole world for him then. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, you know, it gave him confidence even two years later when it came to his GCSEs and he was struggling with remembering quotations. It was an opportunity for me to say, look, you once re- remembered a whole poem in a night. And you recited it to me. Brilliant. You can remember I'm a massive fan of memorising bits of poetry. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, it's good. Um, I, I tend to remember lessons, you know, where, where somebody said something funny or I, I can't repeat anything, to be honest. Um, <laughs> you know, or where something happens, where it goes wrong. Um, yeah. Best, best assembly you've ever seen or, or given? You're asking a lot of difficult questions. I wish <laughs> uh, it's it's terrible that I can't. Do you know what? I don't. Have I, I don't. I've never seen an. I remember once it, when I was at school, a teacher shoved a straw through a potato in assembly. I don't know why they did it. And I remember when I became a teacher, I stood at the side of the hall as a member of SLT stood up in assembly, pierced a potato with a straw. I still don't know for the life of me what the message was. I should... So that's my best. Let's think of one. Let's assembly. think of a message. Is, is, the best assembly is, I, I think it's about, not, I don't know, what, what is it about? It's, I, I remember them asking us, can this straw pierce this potato? We're like, no. And then, of course, it could. So it must have been about. Oh, it'd be, yeah, something to do with. Judging on appearances. Yeah, or maybe and having, having a go. How to kill people with straws. <laughs> you see, that was a little bit of drama, you see, in that assembly, and you've remembered it. Yeah, that's true. That is true. You're right. <laughs> yeah. That's a gorgeous way to finish. <laughs> Matt, it's been an absolute joy talking to you and listening to your world and the passion that you have for helping our boys in English in particular. I think it's an issue that it's not going to go away until, who knows, you know, maybe the, uh, the whole assessment system itself is not designed to help our boys particularly. That's, yeah, that's a theory, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, but it's been just lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for being a part of the podcast really today. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Helen. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Word Up podcast from Oxford Education. To receive bonus material relevant to the discussion, please visit www.oup.com slash education slash podcasts.